Good morning. Open your scriptures, if you would, if you have them, to Hebrews chapter 10. We will be looking at verses 19 through 25 this morning. Let me read those verses, and you read along with me, and then I will pray, and we'll get started. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, the day is drawing near. Those of us who are in Christ long for that day to come where sin will be no more, death and suffering will be ended forever. In the meantime, Father, we pray trusting the confidence that we have in Christ that if we have placed our faith in you, we will endure to that day and be saved. If we think about those things this morning, Father, and, and what it means to be faithful in and through the life of the local church, I pray, God, that our ears would be open and our hearts would be receptive and our wills would be tuned to obey in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. I was, um, I want to take a moment here, just a, a pastoral privilege moment, if I might, to express my gratitude in being affirmed as an elder at Oak Park, uh, when I got here this morning, somebody said, so we elected you as elder and you decided not to show up. Debbie and I were not here last Sunday, and I said, yes, the rigors of the election were just so strong, we had to get away for a few days. And so we went to, uh, to Montreal, Canada to do some business with the North American Mission Board, and we had a delightful trip. We miss when we are not here. From time to time, my responsibilities will require my, my paid responsibilities will require me to be away from time to time. But I do miss being here. My heart is in the local church. I'm honored, let me say, to get to work alongside uh, the fellow elders uh, to serve and care for you who are members of Oak Park Baptist Church. I'm also thankful to have a role in uh, community group ministry uh, when, when that, was, that task was offered to me as I was coming to be a member of the church and looking for a place to plug in. Chase said, the elders and I have been talking. We've got to find some place to put you, man. So would you mind taking care of the community groups? I said, yeah, okay. If that's what's got to be done, I'll do it. I'm teasing. I'm very, uh, very delighted to do that. We know that community groups are a pathway by which members get connected and by which they make friends and by which they serve in the body of the church together. Debbie and I experienced that first last spring as we uh, spent some time in uh, Mike Boswell's community group. And then over the summer, we visited uh, virtually all of the community groups, just getting to know people and seeing what that environment looked like. And then last month, she and I began to host our, uh, a group at our house. And so we're excited about community group ministry. And I'm excited about the timing of being here. 
And Providence has brought us here at this particular time. And it's a time when the vision and the strategy at Oak Park Baptist Church are being recalibrated just a little bit, if you will, taking a careful look at things. And by the grace of God and for the glory of God, I am praying that the impact for the kingdom of God will grow and spread through the efforts and the labors of Oak Park Baptist Church. Those comments are meant to set the table as we proceed this morning. What I'm talking about as I share those things is what every Christian seeks. That is, the opportunity to bear fruits of faithfulness for the glory of God. That it should be our great heartbeat for us. In, the Oak, in Oak Park parlance, we seek to do that by loving Jesus and loving people and helping people love Jesus. Doesn't that sound good? That sounds good, doesn't it? It's really just sort of a pithy, contemporary form of, of, uh, the, great com- of the great commandments, and, and, and it's good for us. We can memorize it. This morning, I want to use a passage in Hebrews 10 that I shared with you to help us think about that. Before we get there, let me set a couple of markers for context. The book of Hebrews, writ large, is about the supremacy of Christ in all things. In chapters 1 through 5, you would read that he is superior over angels. He is superior over Moses. He is superior over earthly tabernacles. And he is supreme and superior over earthly priests. And when you get into chapter 5 and into chapter 6, we begin to read a couple of passages that warn us from falling away. And we are able not to fall away by trusting in the promises of God. We get to chapter 7 and begin to look there through chapter 10. The the author focuses our attention on the sufficiency of the cross as a propitiation for our sins and as the fulfillment of the new covenant for us. Then we come to a summary paragraph in the middle of chapter 10 about the sufficiency of Jesus on the cross. Beginning in verse 11, let me just share a couple of verses. We're moving from, uh, from all of the background of chapter 10 to where we're going to be dealing with, um, the first 10 chapters, to where we're going to be dealing with this morning. Verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Pastor Chase read for us in Psalm 110. For by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Then when we get to verse 18 and 19, that begins to serve as a bridge to carry the readers from all of the doctrine that the first 10 chapters contain. Very meaty doctrine about Christ. To really dig into the book of Hebrews is to begin to rethink about the Old Testament and how all of that points us to Christ. And then we get to this passage we're looking at this morning. And it's a transition passage, if you would, would, from all of that doctrine into more focus on application. Two parts to the passage this morning. Verse 19 through 21 will serve to rehearse the gospel for us. And they give us a context, if you would, for the applications that follow in verses 22 through 25. Chase has been showing us through his teaching in Romans what this passage will remind us of, that every genuine pursuit of a faithful Christian life is based on a confidence, not in what we can do for ourselves, but in what God has done for us through Christ. 
say a little bit more simply for us, I would say it this way. Our faith is rightly grounded in the faithfulness of God. What are you trusting in? I am trusting that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. It is God's sovereign purpose. We learn in John 15, it is God's sovereign purpose that his children bear fruit for his glory. And in God's perfect wisdom, it is his plan, though it sometimes seems unwise to us as we see the, the, fa- the failures and the frailties of human nature, it is God's plan that his children bear fruit primarily in and through the local church. So I want to use this passage this morning to help us think about that. And if I wanted to set sort of a premise or a theme for what we're going to be talking about today from this text, I would say it this way. Our faithfulness is grounded in the gospel and practiced in and through the local church. The faithfulness of the believer is grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is designed and ordained to be practiced. Our faithfulness is designed and ordained to be practiced in and through the local church. So we think about that statement and we want to draw it in a little more closely. The question becomes, how should we go about bearing fruits of faithfulness in Oak Park Baptist Church? Oak Park strategy currently contains three core theological principles. These principles are meant to identify how we go about bearing fruits of faithfulness here, if you will. The principles of worship, the principle of discipleship, and the principle of community. When you think about those, and you think about life at Oak Park, and you think about the, the emphasis that we put on those sorts of things, you would say, yeah, that makes sense. We want to worship well, and we want to understand what worship is. We want to be well discipled, and we, we set structures and, and programs, if you would, to bring that about. And we also want to be involved in community, coming together as a body of believers. Over the last several months, various layers of leadership in the church have been working to amend that strategy in one particular way. We intend to add a fourth principle, the principle of mission. The principle of mission is meant to point our efforts outside the walls, to remember that all the blessing that we get by coming here to worship and to be discipled and to gather as community, we have a, we have a great and higher purpose even than that, and that is to share what we know about Christ with those who are not with us, those who are lost. We'll hear more about that in the coming weeks, and, and we'll decide on that as a congregation in December as we work through the text this morning. I hope you'll be able to see, and I'm going to try to show you how this passage speaks to all four of those principles. The principle of worship, the principle of discipleship, the principle of community, and the principle of mission. I want to outline these seven verses in two main points. Now, the way I'm going to say the points is longer, so I'm going to give you a little shorthand. If you want to take notes, just make the shorthand version here. In verse 19 through 21, as we rehearse the gospel, I'm going to describe those verses... as roots of faithfulness, roots of faithfulness. And then when we get to verse 22 through 25, from that gospel foundation, the author is going to present three exhortations for us, and we're going to call those the practices of faithfulness. So we can set it up that way to follow it. Now, I'm going to say more words than that because I'm a good preacher, and I get paid by the word, so I'm going to make those points longer than that. But if you're taking notes, that's the short way to capture. And I've been told I go pretty fast, so I'm trying to help you here this morning by giving you a shorter version. First point is this. Faithfulness is rooted in a commitment to the gospel. The roots of faithfulness are in, begin in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places 
by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Now that's an awkward pause, but let's pause there. It raises two questions for us, I think. First question is this, what does this text say about the gospel? In a nutshell, in summary, it reminds us that Christ was crucified for our sins. That Christ is risen from the dead. There is a new and living way that the author makes reference to here as well. And that Christ is currently seated at the right hand of God. The gospel is about Christ. In fact, you will often hear it described as the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's a fair and biblical description. For us. The second question that comes from the text, the first one is, what does it say about the gospel? Secondly, how does the gospel then, if we're talking about fruits of faithfulness, how does that gospel generally inform our faithfulness and impact our faithfulness? And I want to point out three ways from these verses. First, the gospel in verses 19 through 21 remind us we cannot live a life of faithfulness on our own. Say Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, I cannot live a life of faithfulness by myself. Go ahead. It's unusual, but try it this morning. I cannot live a life of faithfulness by myself. We've got to get engaged here. Our confidence, our confidence is in the blood of Jesus. Our experience verifies our inability to live faithfully before God. I cannot be confident in my ability to walk faithfully and uprightly before God day in and day out. So this passage serves to point me back to the source of my true confidence. The second way that the gospel informs and impacts our faithfulness is that our faithfulness is shored up because we have direct access to God. Verse 19 again we read, we enter the holy places through His flesh. We are saved. Sadly for many believers or at least those who are seeking belief, when they are saved, they think the race is sort of done. We're finished. I've been saved. I've escaped hell. I've gained heaven. All is good. And we know that's not good theology. We know it's not careful biblical understanding of what it means to be saved. God does not leave us that way. He does not leave us where we are at the time of our salvation. He does not orphan us. He does not leave us without ongoing contact and help. Hebrews 4 helps us here when we think about this in the context of praying. Hebrews 4, verse 14, since then, and it's sort of a parallel text for us, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our faithfulness is built up, it's shored up, it's contained, it's, 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 it's sustained because we can go to God with our troubles and our struggles and our battles and our sin. And He is there and He is wide open for us to come to Him. We don't want to rush past this. We don't want to rush past this notion of what it means to have immediate and direct access to God. That's a crucial Protestant doctrine. It's a crucial doctrine that confirms our salvation. We are a priesthood of ourselves through Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the authority to enter into the holy places and we have an open invitation to enter into the holy places. 
Because we have direct and open access to God, we can go to Him anytime our faithfulness is struggling. He can shore it up for us, build it up for us, does not give us license. We come first confessing that He is God and the great forgiver of sins. And the Word promises us that if we will confess, He will forgive our sins and restore us to righteousness. The word confidence that I read for you in boldness in Hebrews 4 does not mean we come arrogantly or with a cocky attitude. That forgets who God is. No, what it means is that he is there and he waits to receive us. And so we can come with a confidence in the blood of Jesus that he wants to hear from us and will deal with us there. The third way that the gospel generally informs our faithfulness and impacts it is that we are able to endure in this faithfulness because we have a great priest. We have a great priest. And Hebrews 4, he's called a great high priest. Here he's called a great priest. It's still the priest after the order of Melchizedek, and that is the Lord Jesus himself. So let's stay there for just a minute. Jesus is a great priest. I think if we thought about this for a few minutes together and talked about it, we would agree. We tend to overuse the term great in our culture. Last night we had some folks over and we had a great chocolate cake. I was tuned into the television yesterday until what I thought was going to be a great football game did not come out with the results that I desired because Oklahoma got beat. So I would not classify that as a great football game, but everyone who was in Iowa State would classify that as a great football game. And we all love to see great movies. And so we, we toss this word great around, and it has its place. I'm guilty of that. Though Jesus is, is great like that, we don't want to think of his greatness. When we think of this text, we don't want to think of his greatness in such contemporary terms and begin to compare him with lesser greats. For Jesus, great is the description of his majesty and his supremacy over all earthly priests. For Jesus, great describes his power with respect to the gospel, his power to save the lost and to keep those whom he has saved until eternity. For Jesus, greatness is a, rank, is a reference to his rank and his priority over all things. This is the great priest that Hebrews refers to. Colossians 1 says it well in a comprehensive fashion. Verse 15, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, and Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together, and Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's the great that is referred to about Jesus as the author of Hebrews shares that with us. He is a great priest. He is the redeemer of sinners and a mediator of saints between the sinner and God. Because this great priest sits at God's right hand to make intercession for us. Listen, because this great priest sits at the right hand of God to make intercession for us, when we fail in sin, we do not fall from grace. Those first three verses are meant to remind us of what our great priest has done and how his work impacts our lives. And this, this precious and powerful reminder of the gospel, they coach us well in a life of faithfulness. 
It is our tendency, certainly my tendency, because I'm task-oriented, and it has, I was taught to read the Scriptures this way and had to be retaught. It is our tendency sometimes to jump right into, what does this text say I need to do? What's in here for me to act upon? How do I do something with this text? And if we're not careful, we read right past these great solid foundations from which we are able to act and apply. And, and the danger of that is that we begin to try to act and apply what we've read Without having that faithfulness shored up and restored, we begin to try to do it in our own capabilities. Our faithfulness will prove itself faithful when we root our faith in the gospel of Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves this morning, where are we planting the roots of our faithfulness? I would ask that first of the Christian. I would ask you to search your soul carefully. What do you depend on? Is it your job? Bank account, maybe? Is it your personal ability? There are some very gifted people in here, not just in the life of the Spirit, but also just in the life of the world and doing the jobs and the things that you do. I pray that you're not grounding your faithfulness in that. And if you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Christ, I invite you to understand that apart from placing your trust in Jesus, you will not endure to the end. You will not See Christ as he is meant to be seen by you. I want to invite you, if you're trusting in anything else this morning, to place your full faith and confidence in the blood of Christ. The first part of the text reminds us that the roots of enduring faithfulness are planted, planted in a commitment to the gospel. Out of that commitment, the author then presents three related expectations for us. Look with me in verse 22, diving into the middle of this sentence in our English Bibles here. Since we have this great priest, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. There it is. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So here's the second point. Faithfulness is nurtured in local church practices that are consistent with the gospel. Or the short version, practices of faithfulness. The text gives us four pictures. I'm taking these three expectations and stretching them into four pictures. I hope you'll follow why I'm doing that. And these expectations carry the weight of commands for us. So when we read, let us draw near, Scripture is driving us to that sort of behavior. All of this in the context of the local church. Since we're talking about the local church, then we want to ask, okay, what does a life of faithfulness look like for me at Oak Park Baptist Church? While we seek to answer that question from this passage, we want to connect each picture that I'm going to share with you with one of the principles that I spoke of in the introduction. Stay with me, and then I'll review them at the end in case I lose you. Picture one is in verse 22, highlights the principle of worship. Let us draw near. Drawing near is a repeat theme throughout the book of Hebrews. Most clearly, we would go back to that context that I read for you a moment ago, drawing near to the throne of grace to find help and mercy in our time of need. The language of drawing near, though, is not just about when we come in the church doors. This drawing near refers to a continuous, 
repeated activity, talking about a lifestyle. It indicates a consistency for us. Verse 22 includes four phrases. There's a lot of numbers here, sorry. Paul did it, so I do it. Four, four phrases that complement drawing near. Paul didn't write this. I'm not saying that. I'm saying Paul's style. Don't misunderstand me there. He thinks Paul wrote he did. We may find out one day. Uh, let me, let's divide those four phrases into two groups. Pardon me for drifting there. Divide those four phrases into two groups. The first group reflects the attitude of those who believe in the gospel. Talking there in verse 22 about a true heart and full assurance of faith. True heart and full assurance of faith. These first two expressions are intended to tell us how to draw near and stay close to God. First with a true heart, a heart that is fully devoted to Christ and that will not be divided by worldly ambitions. I'm going to suggest to you in a few minutes that if we do not focus on meeting together and drawing near, we are going to be pulled more strongly by worldly ambitions. So we draw near with a true heart. Our attitude is that my heart is fully devoted to Jesus and a full assurance of faith. That refers to confidence, not in our own efforts as we've talked about, but in what Jesus has done. We just rehearsed that in verses 19 through 21. So the first group, these first two phrases, the true heart and full assurance of faith, reflect the attitude of those who believe in the gospel, how we should be drawing near in our mind and our heart. The second group, if you will, reveals the impact or the outcomes of believing in the gospel. A heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is what Jesus has done for us when we repent and trust in him. Because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, we, are, we, we show the finished work of Christ. That's what Hebrews 7 through Hebrews 10 is all about. Providentially, as Nathan was teaching us in the evangelism and missions class this morning, we got in those passages a little bit. And that just reminds me that our heart has been sprinkled uh, clean from an evil conscience. How do I know? Because the work that Jesus did is done. It's finished. He did it. It was sufficient for that. Because our bodies are washed with pure water, which is most likely a reference to baptism. But in the New Testament, it's a covenant commitment on behalf of the believer is what it is. So these are the impacts and the outcomes of drawing near. All four of those expressions, listen, all four of those expressions talk about genuine conversion. They refer to our status before God. They also imply, if I can suggest to you, they also imply a need for us to live righteously. Just a little bit later in the book of Hebrews, we are to strive for peace for everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So though these are, these are our state before Christ, we are to pursue the attitude and the behavior that flows from that. There should be a continuity in worship. That's the point. There should be a continuity in our worship. It should be a lifestyle. Just as we don't draw near to God only when we come into the church, we dare not draw away from God when we leave the church this afternoon to go to lunch. Picture one highlights the principle of worship. Picture two in verse 23 highlights the principle of discipleship. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. What does that look like? What does that look like? We go to the end of chapter 10. We get a little glimpse in verse 39. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. 
And then, of course, the author launches into that great collection, 16 named saints and their stories of faith. With that in mind, let me make three observations about this verse, about bearing fruits of faithfulness in and through the local church. A local New Testament church is a regenerate church. That means that those who are allowed to be in membership give testimony as far as man can tell, God knows ultimately, but give testimony and show evidence of a heart that's been changed by Christ. The regenerate members of a local church share three things in this verse. First, we share a commitment to hold fast, to hold fast. That's our commitment, brothers and sisters, as members of Oak Park. When we gather together, we share a commitment to hold fast to our confession of hope. But let's deal with holding fast for a moment. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 would help us. If I went there, I would read the passage. I won't take the time to do that this morning, but I would remind you that the goal and the target of all discipleship is mature disciples, those who are well-equipped for the work of ministry, those who will not be tossed about by winds and waves of doctrine and human cunning and deceit. Mature disciples will hold fast. We share a commitment to that. In verse 23, we see that a mature faith will not, faith will not be a wobbly faith. We're going to hold fast without wavering. Doesn't mean our fingers won't slip. It means we won't let go. I was reminded of a scene in The Lord of the Rings, the last movie, if you remember it, Return of the King, where Frodo's hanging over the fire. And Samwise Gamgee is reaching down, trying to pull him up from the fire. And he's saying, don't you let go, Mr. Frodo. Don't you let go. It's an image. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you'll get it. If not, see me after, and I'll help you explain it to you. It means... And we won't turn loose of what we believe. That we will hold fast. We will not be blown about by some strange new doctrine. We also share a confession. A confession of hope. I love that word confession. I think it's both instructive and illustrative. It's instructive in that the confession of hope refers, that phrase refers to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It means we trust in that gospel. The church has long confessed her hope in that gospel, though, through creeds and confessional statements, like our Baptist faith and message. Over history, these creeds and confessions have provided summaries and explanations and catechism means, tools for us to which the church to understand the doctrines to which we are holding fast. These confessions or creeds are tools for us it's instructive in that sense, this phrase, confession of hope. It's also illustrative. And while I was a pastor at Harrison Hills Baptist Church for about eight and a half years, occasionally we would recite the Apostles' Creed as part of our worship liturgy. Now, some of you who are really long time died in the wool, traditional Southern Baptists, I love you, I am one of you. Some, of, some, some are going to hear me say that and, and maybe would express what I heard expressed a couple of times. Every time we would do that, you know, preacher, Baptists have no creed but the Bible. And I would say, yes, that's true. I would say, amen, I believe that. I would say, that will preach. Baptists have no creed but the Bible. That's part of the reason why I am a Baptist. But the church has used such biblically faithful confessional statements for hundreds of years to teach her members doctrine in concise, formative ways that are memorable for us. For Baptists, there is value in learning what we call the Baptist faith and message. I would encourage you to explore it. It's not inspired text. 
but it articulates for us that which is inspired. I mentioned those statements to instruct us and to illustrate for us what I think verse 23 is saying to us so that we don't get lost. Look at it. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So what that tells me is a couple of things. One, when we gather, we do not gather believing whatever we choose to gather. We do not gather with various hot takes on what truth is this week and what it isn't. No, no. We gather under the umbrella of biblical orthodoxy. We gather together on the solid foundation of biblical truth. So I will be clear. Our confession of hope in verse 23 is grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ that is revealed in Scripture. Having said that, I think we can learn, lean on that word confession to illustrate for us how statements of belief catalog that truth in helpful ways. We have a shared commitment as a body of believers covenanted together here at Oak Park. We have a shared commitment, we have a shared confession, confession, and we have a shared confidence in God. He who promised is faithful. God's faithfulness is not reliant upon our faith. Let me say that again. God's faithfulness is not dependent or reliant upon our faith. Not for one second is that true. But God's faithfulness is affirmed by our faith. That's why we hold fast. That's why we hold. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not dependent. Whether I believe or not doesn't mean God is going to be faithful or you're not going to be faithful. But I affirm his faithfulness by how I live my life. You believers affirm God's faithfulness by how you live your life. That's why we hold fast to this confession of hope. As God's faithfulness is demonstrated through our faith, we hold fast and do not waver. Picture one, draw near to God in worship. Picture two, hold fast in discipleship by remaining true to sound doctrine. Picture three is in verse 24. I think it highlights the principle of mission for us. Consider how to stir up one another. Now, I want to deal with that, but peek with me for just a second at the beginning of verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together. See that phrase at the beginning of verse 25? Your translation may say it's slightly different, but it's the same expression. In that verse, we see an anticipation of gathering. That's why I'm centering all of this around the notion of the local church. There's a component of gathering together in this passage that I think is relevant for us to think that way. We have an anticipation of gathering in verse 25. But verse 24 reveals the aim of our gathering. Why do we gather? We gather to stir up one another to love and good works. The principle of mission. The order of those terms is intentional. We are called first to love one another. Jesus teaches us in John 13, our love for one another testifies to a watching world that we are his disciples. And out of our love for one another, we're moved to serve one another and serve others through good works. Good works is a general byproduct of regeneration. I think that's a fair statement. I would go to Ephesians 2 to stand on, to defend that statement. General byproduct, just what that means. It's a general byproduct. If you are a believer, you're going to be engaged in good works. We learn by grace we've been saved through faith, and then we get to verse 10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do the good works which God has prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So if we're saved then what the byproduct of that is good works. It looks different for all of us based on our gifts, the needs of the church, etc. 
and we're not to grow weary in doing so. Paul writes for us in Galatians 6 that we're not to grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, the local church for us. The priority on serving within the family of God points us back to the context I am dealing with this morning. This is the cross-bearing life of a faithful believer, to love God and love others. We love and serve others to imitate the model of Christ loving and serving us, John 13. So how do we pursue that aim? And that brings us to the fourth picture in verse 25, which I think highlights the principle of community. We do not neglect to meet together, but we encourage one another. If you'll let me here, by way of implication, I want to look at this verse through the window of contrast, a negative and a positive. I'm going to start with the negative. And, uh, I'm not very creative, but let me call this the, the dangers of absence. What happens when we neglect meeting together? What happens when we're not wired in well and, and, and committed and serving and loving each other in a local church context? What happens? I call those the dangers of absence. Working from the language in the text, I want to suggest what happens if we don't fulfill the expectations that we've been reading about. All right? So if we neglect meeting together, verse 22, the assurance of our faith will be under more constant attack from impure influences. Now stay with me. I'm going to get to the positives in a moment. But I think that's a danger of not being present and active and engaged in the local church on a consistent basis. Your faith will be under more constant attack from impure influences. Isolated, if you will. In verse 23, the confession of our hope will be regularly subjected to whispers of doubt about God's faithfulness. Did God really say that? In verse 24, the dangers of, not, of neglecting to meet together, our love will be left to what I might call a natural laziness or maybe even better, a, a self-indulgence. We won't be others-minded. We are prone to love ourselves. We're prone to be self-indulgent. Fourth, our ministry or our good works in verse 24 will be blinded to the real needs of the church and left to subjective worldly impressions. Let me give you an illustration. While I was at the meeting uh, the first part of this week, the uh, sin relief component of the North American Mission Board. Stay with me. I don't want to lose you in the terminology. You, many of you who have been Southern Baptist for any length of time understand about disaster relief and those kinds of things. Uh, about 18 months ago, uh, NAM launched a, a, a version of that greatly expanded. It's called Sin Relief. And Sin Relief not only deals with disaster relief, but it deals with great compassion ministries. As it continues to roll out, it's going to be dealing with um, uh, human trafficking, for instance, and such things. There are four or five categories that are there. And so in the process of, this, of the needs being expressed on every, every capable media, people have been chucking money, as they should, money by the tens and thousands of dollars to help out with the hurricane disaster relief. And uh, uh, Irma and Harvey, is that it? Harvey? Somebody help me. Harvey? Good, thank you. Irma and Harvey, just, you can imagine the money rolling in. And um, some of the folks in the sin relief world uh, were offered uh, great big checks. And they took them, and that's good. But these people were doing that. They're not confessing Christ. They're doing that because it's a good deed. 
They feel like morally they're bound to help out those who are in need. It's a worldly ambition. I need to do this good thing for these people who are hurting. I may be hurting one day, and somebody else, I hope somebody else will come along with a checkbook and write a check to help me out. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about worldly ambitions. We're still going to do good stuff, perhaps, but it's not going to be motivated by the gospel. The premise of sin relief is to get in and to love so that we can talk about Jesus. And so the worldly ambitions of not coming in, we're still going to do good stuff, but we're blinded to the needs of those that are with, and we're left to subjective influences and impressions about how we should do good works. I think those would be realistic dangers of neglecting to meet together. Now, let's turn the coin over. Conversely, look at blessings of attendance. These four blessings are not specifically mentioned in the passage, but I am not uh, biblically conflicted to share them with you in this sort of way. Again, the blessings of attendance. One in verse 22. Our faith is assured. Our faith is assured. The full assurance of faith. Our faith is assured through consistent exposure to the Word of God. Every Sunday, while we're here, the Word of God is sung. The Word of God is read. The Word of God is prayed. The Word of God is preached. And as often as we can, the Word of God is portrayed or practiced in baptisms and Lord's suppers. Coming together to do that, not neglecting to meet together, but coming together, the blessings of attendance reassures and builds up our faith in those ways. Secondly, verse 23, our hope is renewed. The confession of our hope is renewed through sound teaching in our 915 discipleship class hour and sound preaching in the 1030 sermon hour. In verse 24, our love is motivated through fellowship and interaction. When we're around each other, when we're around each other, we, we love each other more. We get to know each other, and we love each other more. And Good works, fourthly, are stirred up because there are needs that we know about from the brother or sister sitting next to us. Or when we go into our community groups, we hear about needs and we respond to those. That's being stirred up one another to love and good works. Carry one another's burdens, Paul writes for us, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So we're led to ask, how do we reach out for the blessings of attendance? This is not hard. I feel to some degree I'm preaching to the choir this morning, but that's okay. The choir needs to hear the word on time, from time to time to be reminded. Let me give you three specific suggestions. We're not done yet. Let me just give you these. How do we reach out? If these are blessings of attendance, how do we get them? First, regular, listen to the descriptors, regular, faithful, active engagement on Sunday mornings, both in the discipleship classes and the worship services. Don't just come. That's good. Be engaged. Listen well. Put up your devices. Interact where appropriate. Lean forward in learning. Second, what's another way that we can receive the blessing of attendance? Wednesday night is serving night. Is that fair, brother? Wednesday night is serving night. We have Awanas for our children. We have um, Dispersion for our youth. Now we have ESL for our adults. There are no end of opportunities to serve on Wednesday nights at Oak Park. We need teachers. We need helpers. We need servants in the daycare arena. Be involved, thirdly, in one of our community groups. There's information at the Welcome Center about that. 
also online at oakparkbaptist.com. You can find out about that. I'd be happy to talk to you about that. I said at the start that our community groups are where relationships are built and friendships are formed and deepened. That's the mechanism for doing that at Oak Park. We do not have a uh, for the most part, we do not have a traditional Sunday school environment where if, you, if you've been involved in church life over the decades, you may be used to forming relationships through that sort of environment. Your friends become those who are in your Sunday school classes. We don't do that here, and so we have set up community groups for that sort of relationship development to take place. I would also note to you that community groups are where we team up. I mentioned this earlier. To serve, we team up to serve within the church and do ministry outside the church. Chris shared in the announcements about the fall festival coming up on the 28th and how the various community groups are being asked to pick up certain pockets of that to serve. As part of the new vision and strategy here at Oak Park, or the recalibrated vision and strategy, community groups are becoming the first level of identifying and raising up leaders for the church. All of those things take place. All of those are blessings of attendance. The roots of faithfulness are planted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our confidence rests fully on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Nothing else. Nothing else. Nothing else. No matter how much you're here, how much you serve, none of those things are the gospel. The gospel is trusting by faith in the person and the work of Christ. Crucified, risen, and ascended. So let's review the practices of faithfulness. Picture one, we draw near through worship, verse 22. Picture two, we hold fast to sound doctrine through discipleship, in verse 23. Picture three, we stir up one another to love and good works through mission, in verse 24. And picture four, we meet together through community, verse 25. We're almost done, but I don't want to skip that last phrase in verse 25. And all the more... You're doing all those things, doing more, the author is telling us. Paul tells us that in Thessalonians. You've shown your evidence of love and care. Do so more and more. Is it ever enough? Well, not to, not to save. You don't need to do that. But to continue to serve faithfully, it's never enough. We're not there yet. We're not in heaven yet. Work needs to be done. I need to be loved, cared for, shepherded. People all around this room need those things. All the more as you see the day drawing near. After some specific expectations, the author reconnects us to the gospel, the roots of faithfulness. You see how he does that at the end? And all the more as you see the day drawing near, the day perks up at us. It's a reference to a day of judgment for unrepentant sinners and a day of rejoicing for the saints who are saved. Colin, you and Michelle can go ahead and come on up. The end of verse 25 leaves us with two thoughts. First thought has to do with preparation and excitement. As believers, we think about the day drawing near. We must keep the end in view at all times. The New Testament was written with an anticipation that Jesus was coming back tomorrow or even today. You read it over and over and over again. And if we're not careful, we grow complacent in the urgency of that. I want to see my grandkids grow up and get married and have kids and be, live long enough to see great-grandkids. I want more for Jesus to come back. As good as my grandkids are, Jesus is better. As good as my grandkids are, I'm tired of sinning. 
I'm tired of doing funerals. All the more, we need to have preparation and excitement. So the Scripture teaches us a life of faithfulness will produce fruits of faithfulness. And Scripture calls us to do that through the local church. That's the first thought. The second thought is about urgency. As we think about those who are around us, who are lost and apart from Christ, the day is drawing near. The gospel reminds us in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to repent and believe. But there is coming a day when his patience on earth is going to give way for his purposes for heaven. We read Psalm 110 earlier so that we could hear God's promise to David about this final day. And the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my feet until I make your enemies your footstools. On that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to their eternal joy or everlasting torment. Church, we have responsibility to reach, seek to reach under the providence and sovereignty of God those who do not know Christ. We don't want to skip past that in verse 25. Maybe you're here this morning and you are one of those. And you're here just checking out truth claims of Christianity. Maybe you came to hear the regular guy and he's not preaching today. Come back next week. He'll be back next week. And it'll be good. He's taking us through Romans and doing a marvelous job. But today, let today be the day of salvation for you. If you are not a follower of Jesus, I invite you to come. If you're not sure what that means, catch me after. Catch one of the other elders. Probably the person you're sitting next to would be glad to talk to you about what it means to place your faith in Christ. The day is drawing near, saints. Let's rejoice. Let's be faithful for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it teaches us and challenges us, convicts us and encourages us. Mostly, Father, it reminds us that that as it is living and active, you are living and active. Christ is risen, seated at your right hand, interceding for us as saints so that we do not make shipwreck of our faith. And the work is still to be done. So we are reminded, Father, of, of your desire for us to bear fruits for your glory. And we, we see through the Scriptures the intention that that is, is done primarily, I think, in and through uh, the local church. Thank you, Father, for the saints at Oak Park. I pray you continue to give blessing to them in their, in their efforts and their labors for the sake of the gospel. God, we need each other, and we need you. And we pray thanking you. Though we can't always trust each other or depend on each other, we can always trust in the one who promised because he is faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.